Welcome, Traveler, to Dungeons and Dialectics, the synthesis of tabletop role-playing games, philosophy, and theology. We want to talk about, today, a certain feature of game design that I think has parallels with a certain kind of perplexing question about free will in the real world, which is, how much do you really need alternate options here to get something desirable off the ground? Um, this is going to be slightly different for free will versus game design, but I think there's a parallelism here, and Joey has a an exciting article, which I didn't read, because he said, don't read this article, because I'll explain it all to you. Yeah, so that way you can you can be like the audience surrogate, and yeah. you'll be like, wow, what is this cool article? And I'll get to cool explain article. it to you. Aren't yeah, you I supposed mean... to say, like, Matt, do you, can you think of a time when you fucked up something? <laughs> yeah, 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 I'll get to it, I'll get okay. to it. Um, <laughs> Matt, I will, I will, you've listened to all the episodes, you know I cut I stuff that doesn't make any sense. You're a very good editor. I also, I also cut out most of our ums. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want it to sound like we say um <laughs> we got our shit I, together I, I don't I want, I want it to sound I cut out when we say um and I cut out when we're looking it up on Wikipedia yeah 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 okay that makes sense so except that one time wow Matt that sounds like a fascinating quandary and a great look at the intersection of what philosophy tells us about freedom free will and also about game design I'm wondering though for the listeners at home have you, as a player, ever, with your free will and exercising your freedom, really fucked things up for the rest of the players, including the Dungeon Master? I've fucked my Dungeon Master over many times. It's my favorite part about the game, ruining their hours of oil labor for no real I can. Reason. I have Dungeon Mastered for... Matt, and he has fucked me many times. Figuratively and literally. Well, I was thinking in the literal sense, but also figuratively. That is a good point. I hadn't even thought about it. You haven't thought about it that way. Off the top of my head, I can kind of think of two different episodes in my career as a bad player of Dungeons & Dragons. (laughs) So there I was on an island. This is like the first time I ever played D&D, actually. And our friend Max decided he wanted to try his hand at Dungeon Master. And he invited all of us to, to be there. But at the end of the session, myself and another friend decided it would be a great idea to split the party at the first session of playing that Max had ever DM'd. And because this was the first time he had ever DM'd, he had no power. He had like none of the psychological resources to stop me. You know what I mean? None of the none of the tricks. He had none of the tricks to stop me. The manipulations. So my friend and I just flew away together, and he spent the next like three or four months having to DM two different groups. <laughs> People. <laughs> wow, what, a, what an asshole. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? It was more fun that way. For who? Uh, I don't know. I had fun. <laughs> That's what matters. Probably that nobody else matters. had fun then. Let me ask you a question, Joey. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Tell me. Is, was there was there ever a time when you fucked your players hard <laughs> from the back when you when you came in from the backside and fucked them hard, dude? You know, I um, I like to I like to believe I give a lot to my players. 
I also, you know, I will be honest, I historically have a pretty good track record of respecting player agency and letting them take their own decisions and do whatever they want and face the consequences, whatever that is. But I will tell you a story of when my players fucked me over without recognizing it. Because one of our players had contracted lycanthropy and he was now a were hyena. And we had talked about this before that like he was totally cool with it. He was like, good, I'm bored with this character. I want out. Turn me into a were hyena. I'll like go attack the party and they'll either kill me or I'll escape and I'll come back like later when I'm cured myself. I was like, okay, okay, this is awesome. This is like so cool. And the others will never see it coming. I love watching PCs fight. It's the best. Um, (laughs) A lot of people will tell you not to let your PCs fight. Encourage them to fight. That's my advice. And so I decided, oh, there was going to be this whole final encounter where the rest of the party is tracking this were hyena and they don't know that it's one of them. And so they're tracking it through the sewers where it turns out that these other people who are like hunting the were hyena have set up these these explosives because they want to like trap it and kill it. And so there was going to be this enormous explosion and there was going to be this like almost bottomless or not bottomless. There was this like huge pit of acid that they were going to have to fight like over this giant pit and the like one of the um, the lycanthrope hunters was going to have these like special boots that allowed her to levitate and she was trying to kill the were hyena and the were hyena was like had turned and was trying to kill everybody and then the players were trying to stop the were hyena hunter from killing their friend but also stop their friend from killing other people and it was this like epic thing of like three different sides with this huge set piece of people like falling into vats of acid very exciting it's kind of boring to me but okay. okay well you know what matt you wouldn't know exciting if it bit you in the ass let me just tell you that that's the only thing that excites me anymore is ass biting yep well i'll let max know he's not i think he's doing right now dude oh yeah well you don't sound very excited um he's not very good at it oh i see well practice makes perfect yeah so good well so i had this huge action set piece and the were hyena like sort of at the last minute uh the player decided oh you know actually i want to ditch my friends and go off and do this other thing and take revenge on these people who wronged me before, like, before I leave town. And I was like, oh, are you sure you don't want to, like, go through the, like, investigation in the sewers with your friends? Like, wouldn't that be more interesting? And he's like, no, nah, I'd rather just go kill these people that, that pissed me off a long time ago. Can you identify who this player was? It was not who you're thinking it was. I don't actually think you know this person. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Because this person, like, he doesn't know that I planned this whole thing. And I don't want to tell him that I planned this whole thing. Because I want to try and manipulate him into doing it because it's what he wants to do. Yeah. Which. Thank you for putting it that way. You wanted to manipulate him. But it's also what he wanted to do. Exactly. Ooh. We might be getting ahead of ourselves. Might be getting ahead of ourselves. And so I just let him. And to this day, we have not used the sewer explosion map. I have this dream that, like, someday we will get back to it, and I won't have wasted all that work 
I, I put into having like four different versions of this map where it was like normal and then exploded and then part of the floor had crumbled in. Wow, that's crazy. You mean you didn't try to railroad him into doing it? I did not try to railroad him. In. I you mean, just let him do what he wanted. I let him do what he wanted, and he went and he um, he murdered these people that pissed him off, and that made him really happy. And he had a blast. Meanwhile, the rest of the party, oh, and the rest of the party, bored. They were the worst detectives ever. They're like, "What are we doing? Who are we looking for? What's going on?" <laughs> um, well, Vincenzo, one of my characters, is the best detective ever. I've played with Vincenzo, and I'm just going to let the listeners know that's not even remotely true. <laughs> what do you mean? I solved the, the the werewolf caper in my campaign. This is wolves, not jaguars. Hyenas. I, no, but I solved... The one I solved was werewolves. <laughs> Where did the jaguars come from? Oh, I just I guess I just translated hyena into jaguar in my brain. They're similar, right. you know. Yeah, of course. Very similar. <laughs> um, they both have spots. So, we've talked long enough about about old adventure stories. Matt, why don't you bring us into the the meat and potatoes games philosophy? So, free will is a way too big topic to do an episode on. So, I thought that I would. <laughs> so, I thought let's do it anyway. So, I thought let's do it anyway. No, I want to. I mean, we can re- change the title to be like reflective of, of what. I'm about to talk about so <laughs> we end up talking about just call it alternative possibilities um, so for most of the history of reflection on free will people have thought that one needs alternate possibilities to have free will and if free will is some kind of condition on being morally responsible for what one does then one needs alternate possibilities to be more responsible for what one does. And by alternate possibilities, I, I mean the intuitive. There's like technical ways of spelling this out, but I really mean the intuitive idea that at a certain time, I can do one thing or I can do another. Like, really, it's really true about me that I could have done either of those things. And debates, uh, you know, like if determinism happened to be true, people would debate about whether or not determinism ruled out alternate possibilities, like there are all these different ways of trying to finesse it so that, okay, although you were determined to do that, there's a sense in which you had alternate possibilities. Then other people would say, no, actually, you really, determinism can't be true and you have alternate possibilities, and this sort of thing, okay? So when you say determinism, Uh, the idea of determinism is that everything that has happened, is happening, will happen, has already been determined whether that determination comes from some cosmic force like a god or whether that comes from some sort of like materialistic or naturalist explanation that whatever has happened before like whatever combination of like atoms and chemical reactions and different sort of like very like normal influences is what causes the next thing to happen and it's all a chain of cause and effect let me put it this way the most popular way of thinking about determinism is that facts about the remote past in conjunction with the laws of nature establish the truth of all of the you know propositions you could articulate about the future of the, of the real world so like that tomorrow imagine that tomorrow I, I go to, to work or something that that I'm going to go to work tomorrow would be true that truth is fixed by remote facts about the past in conjunction with the laws of nature. Now, mm-hmm. 
I am also the truth maker of that because, it, you know, if I didn't go to work, I wouldn't go to work. So this is what's called a counterfactual analysis of mm-hmm. alternate possibilities. One way of trying to make alternate possibilities compatible with determinism is to offer a counterfactual, try to offer a counterfactual way of talking about alternate possibilities. Like, even though it's fixed by the laws of nature that I'll do something tomorrow, it's still true about me then that if I had chosen to do something else, I would have done the other thing. My choice itself is is a function of the deterministic force, whether that's God or the laws of nature or whatever. But that doesn't mean that it isn't true that if I had chosen to do something else, I would have done the other thing, right? Yeah. You could have, but you will not. Exactly. I will not, although I will not choose to do that other thing. If I had chosen to do it, I would have done it. Yeah, it was possible. Because my own choice, well, that's what they argue over, but my own choice is part of the determinism, right? It's like, yeah. My choice, it's not as though because I'm determined to do something, I no longer choose to do it. Yeah. I'm still choosing to do it. It's just that it's determined that I will choose a certain way. Yes. But, you know, people fight endlessly about whether there's a sense of alternate possibilities that's compatible with determinism or not. But, you know, in the 20th century, someone named Frankfurt, that's his last name, I think his first name's Harry, Harry Frankfurt. <laughs> kind of an unfortunate name, you know, for philosopher Harry Frankfurt. Dude. I think it's a fantastic name. It'd be like if your name was, like, uh, like Slim Dickens or something, you know? Yeah, but, a fantastic uh, name also. Well, yeah, that's a good, that's a good one. But, um, <laughs> so, he these offered are, thought these are some free some free character ideas for all you listeners. Slim Dickens uh, and Harry, Harry Frankfurt. Big ballers. Yep. So, he offered kind of a thought experiment. That's supposed to show that, strictly speaking, alternate possibilities aren't necessary to be for moral responsibility. Insofar as free will, you know, if we think about free will as the strongest kind of control that you need to be morally responsible for something, mm-hmm. it might be that although you don't have alternate possibilities, you can still have free will in that sense. So here's the thought experiment. Or here's a version of it. I'm just kind of recalling. I'm not going to like give you his version. But <laughs> this is the Matt version. The Matt original. This is my version. So you imagine some person who's going to do something. Mm-hmm. Right. He wants to do it. You want to um, go to work tomorrow. And so, well, usually it's something like immoral because that's what pumps our intuitions mm-hmm. better. But yeah, let's say I want to. Let's say I want to mur- like eat some Great. babies. You're going to eat some babies tomorrow. Yeah, I'm going to. I'm going to eat a baby tomorrow. What well, is tomorrow? I'm about to eat a baby. Like, there's a baby in front of me, and I think, yum, 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 let's dig in. Yep. But unbeknownst to me, there's a mad scientist who's monitoring my brain activity, and he can tell if I'm going to eat it or not, and he wants me to eat the baby. Luckily, I want to eat it too, <laughs> so I end up eating it. However... Luckily, not for the baby, unluckily well, for the baby. This is just like kind of like, it's like a ultra-late-term abortion, if you think of it that way. I'm, I'm not going to. <laughs> so... So, so the idea is there's a mad scientist monitoring my brainwaves. He wants me to do what I'm, what I myself want to do. But if I were to decide that I don't want to do it, or if I were to start showing, you know, hesitation about doing it, there's different ways you can cook this, right? This kind of thing. He will flip a switch and make me do it. Uh-huh. And there's other versions where he's already implanted like something in my brain such that uh, 
no matter what, I'm going to do it. You know, so it doesn't have to be these uh-huh. particular things. But anyway, the idea. So the mad scientist is God. It could be God. It could be. A, and God wants you to eat the baby. It could be. It's Jesus. And it's the because eating the flesh of baby Jesus yeah. brings salvation. That's right. Yeah. So I'm going to be saved if I eat this baby because I think it's baby Jesus. And um, the idea is that I do what I want, but there's no alternate course of action that's open to me because. You know, however we're going to cook this. Like, before I can even start going about deciding to do that, he's going to override my practical deliberations. Or, mm-hmm. you know, even override before I have any practical deliberations and make me do the thing. All right. So the intuition you're supposed to have is that, well, yeah, you couldn't have done otherwise, but because in the actual scenario, you want to do it, you intend to do it, you know, like all these criteria, it seems like you want to say, well, the person's morally responsible for doing it, even though they couldn't have done otherwise, because everything about them as a person and their considerative profile, what they're planning to do, favors doing the evil thing, and they do the evil thing, you know? Yeah. So, the mad scientist is a really shitty DM, yep. who the players, the he wants the players to do something, yep. and the players are either going to do it, because they want to, and yay, that's great, the players are having fun, isn't that wonderful? But if they don't want to do it, He'll just flip the switch and make them do it anyway. That's right. Yeah. So my thought when you first, when we were talking about this idea, I was thinking, well, is it the case that you actually need like good alternate courses of action for players in a, in a game design scenario? Um, is it enough that they desire to do what they're doing, um, you know, plan to do what they're doing? and then execute doing what they're doing, although the DM could have intervened at any moment to make them do something else. You know what I mean? Like, if they tried to do something else, the DM could enter in to their to their game scenario and force them to do it, but but they, they wanted to do what he wanted them to do. So there was no, there was no conflict between his, mm-hmm. you know, interfering at what they, and doing what they wanted. So, strictly speaking, they didn't actually have any alternate options from a design perspective, uh-huh. but they were still enjoying themselves and having a good a good experience. This is similar to a bunch, a couple of blog posts that came out in, like, 2011 about Dungeons & Dragons and game design that have since sort of, like, entered the, kind of, like, the consciousness of, of the community. And, like, the community that are, like, really deep into this stuff, not like you're your casual fans like Matt. But yeah, I'm not that deep into it. Yeah, we're talking you're like uber nerds like myself. But, you know, these people talking about uh, what they're calling illusionism, which is the idea that, um, or kind of the game, the, if you design a game with illusionism, you are creating basically false choices. So you might present the players with a choice simply of, well, there are three forests and you know that, you know, whatever like MacGuffin you're looking for is in one of the three forests and one of the three forests has an ogre and the the dungeon master can either decide which one has the MacGuffin and which one has the ogre at the outset, they write it down. And then when the players choose, that determines what the result is, whether they find the MacGuffin or whether they find the ogre. But there's another way you can play it where you just decide, well, they're going to find the ogre no matter what because of pacing or whatever. That, oh, I think it'll be more satisfying narratively 
if they have to fight the ogre and if they fight like a second monster in the next wood and the third one they check is where the MacGuffin is and it's like they didn't just skip the whole adventure they went through all the parts that I had laid out for them so the second version is illusionism it's a false choice their their choice does not matter whatever the dungeon masters preordained is what's going to happen and so this blog dreams in the lich house basically is making this argument that player agency is important only insofar as the players experience agency. So as long as they can't perceive that they have no agency, effectively they do because they did what they wanted to do. Right. And it didn't really change the outcome, but they got to make the choice. Then hack and slash another blog jumps in and says, no, this is bullshit. This is bad game design. And you shouldn't do it because one, your players will figure it out eventually and they will hate you for it. And then they won't be able to trust you and they'll like, they'll never have fun again. And two, because smart players will often like try to do some sort of investigation of the woods before they go in to see whether the ogre is there or like which, which forest has the ogre. And so if you've just, if you decided, well, there's nothing they can do to avoid this inevitable fate of meeting the ogre, then there's nothing that they can gain and it'll just be a frustrating time for everybody. And it's Hack and Slash who calls this the quantum ogre problem. Okay. Because the ogre could be anywhere. Right. Or rather, the ogre is... It's not that it could be anywhere. In a certain sense, before the players decide which forest they're going to go into, the ogre is in every wood. Mm. And then by choosing the ogre is actually in that one only in that one but before they choose he's in all of them yes exactly that's a great way of putting it what's your opinion as a as a long-term dm i mean what do you think about this fortunately none of my well i guess some of the people that i i run games for listen to this podcast so maybe i don't want to tell you're gonna let it be revealed right now that you're like a dog shit dm (laughs) this is um (laughs) this is um this is how we'll advertise the episode Find out whether Joe is a shit DM or a really good one. Yeah. Spoiler alert, I'm a really good one. The argument that Dreams in the Lich House, that's the first blog post makes, is that if you're doing like a re- a sandbox game, you you have three things that you can decide between when you're designing your game. You can either have player freedom, that they have basically unlimited choices. You can have detail. Like the things that you like every rock has like a story or like every town is really written out in depth. Each wood, each forest has a different encounter, etc. Or you can have effort. So you either have low effort or you have really high, high effort. And if you're not doing this professionally or even if you're doing this professionally and you just don't want to spend like, I don't know, like 100 hours a week writing this shit. Like, you don't have infinite effort. You have to pick, this is the argument, you have to pick two of those. Like, they can either have lots of freedom and lots of detail, but it's going to be a lot of effort, or you can have very low effort, and you will have to sacrifice either player freedom or the detail of the of the setting. Right. And so I think that the answer is there's a balance between creating enough detail that the world feels, like, fleshed out and having enough kind of having honed enough of your sort of improvisation skills to fill in the gaps versus not just like deciding what the path is going to be. And then later 
like reskinning different encounters or different scenarios to basically uh, rob the players of any agency. For example, I made this whole encounter where the the sewer was going to explode yeah. and there was going to be like flying enemies and like this three way combat, and you know I pitched it because the the players didn't actually end up doing that. So I don't do the quantum ogre thing, right? I I I have ideas about where they will go, and I try to prep what I think they will do, but sometimes I get it wrong and it doesn't end up working out. I think that the best way to do it is to ahead of the session, like I have my plot line that I've decided is like, these are the things that are going on in the world. And I suspect that the players will engage in this in like one of a number of ways. But I always ask the players before our session, hey, what are you all planning on doing today? Because that's what I'll prepare. Because I want to prepare something that they will feel engaged with um, and something that like lights their lights their fire you want them to be passionate about what you do i want them to be passionate about what they're doing and also i don't want to waste my fucking time like setting up (laughs) setting up this huge action set piece only to find out that they're like you know i don't even want to go to this town anymore i want to go to the other town where i know the dungeon master hasn't prepared anything right i would never do that and if you're a real asshole like matt or myself I think we would take some joy out of like trying to push the boundaries and seeing how like what has the DM not prepared for and how can we sort of like how can we test their improvisational skills or like fuck them up. Well, over. but you know what? From yes, I do do that, okay? I do, that. <laughs> I do it. But I also feel like without any malicious motive, you know, which I have. Mhm. Something fun about in video games and tabletop games, whatever, perceiving that this is the critical path, as they call it in video games, this is what I'm supposed to be doing, and then seeing, well, what little hidden doodads are there around the critical path, or if I go off the beaten mm-hmm. you know, trail, what will I find? Of course, the problem with the tabletop game is the dungeon master may have nothing there. <laughs> yeah. So, you know... Um, but I think there's something inherently pleasant mm-hmm. about finding little hidden details yeah. if they exist. Yeah, and I think that one of the advantages, by contrast, with tabletop gaming is that while the DM may not have prepared for every possible eventuality, and so it's quite possible that you will go look somewhere and there's nothing, or whatever you find will be unsatisfactory because they came up with it like on the fly. They can um, improvise, man. They can improvise, and because you have essentially unlimited options, um, alternative choices, as it were, you yeah. you really you do have the flexibility to kind of explore and find new things that that others have not really considered. And sometimes some of the coolest things in the game or like in the story come out of something that the dungeon master has improvised that was not planned yeah. to be there. Right. Absolutely. Like uh in the campaign we're running right now, or rather, it's like the, it's like part eighty-seven of this, uh, of this epic casino story. Yeah. <laughs> I found a, I was in a kitchen, and I found a talking knife. Like I picked up a knife and I started interrogating it because we're in pandemonium and everything's wacky. Yeah, I don't think Daniel intended this to be a feature, 
But um, <laughs> eventually, the the knife started talking. No, he he couldn't talk. He started drawing or something. He drew a picture of a knife with two perfectly formed breasts. Okay. And so what I detected in this was that he was looking for his lost loved one. Yeah. So I went on an entire quest finding this knife's wife. Or partner. Or lover. And uh, that was spontaneous. It was all me, baby. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's amazing. And now you have two knives. And now I have two knives fucking in my backpack. And they have produced more knives, as I understand it. Yeah, they have. It's going to be crazy. It's getting crazy in there. <laughs> and that's the kind of that's the kind of zany fun that that Matt and Joe bring to the table. That's right. Um. <laughs> so, with respect to the free will question, yeah, you might say the person in question, like the the manipulator person, has free will. Does you know what they're doing? They're responsible for what they're doing. Maybe, but you could also say. But it would be better if they had even more control, right? If they had these alternate options. They can still have one thing that we think is really desirable, namely mm-hmm. the ability to act such that you're morally responsible for what you do. But it might be that having the ability to do otherwise in a thick sense of having really like real alternate options to mm-hmm. you might be better overall, even if you can you know, be more responsible about it. So I think we might say something similar about design you can have a well-designed encounter in which the players do what they want and it accords with what the DM wants and, mm-hmm. you know, had they not done that, he would have forced it. You could have it be the case that in that setting, it was still a good session, yeah. right? But it may be that adding in thick alternate options is going to make it better. Yes. I think that in a, in a perfect world you have infinite alternate options, but we are human beings and we are not perfect. So, right. so you kind of have to compromise. I think that some people are more comfortable compromising a lot more and saying like, Oh, yeah. I've already decided this is how it's going to be. And as long as you are, as long as the players align with you and they say, Oh, this is what I want and you don't have to force it. That works perfectly well. Once you start having to force it, you start sucking the fun out of the game and frustrating your players. I will say for me, I think that I might be more annoyed by a lack of options in game design than other people. Mm -hmm. Because I take active pleasure not just in what I do, but in the thought that I could have done other things. Oh, there were these hidden things Mm -hmm. I could have done that had I done it, things would have been really different. Who knows? would have happened good example of this in board games uh i really like the new version of arkham horror where you have all these scenarios you're working through that are kind of lovecraftian Mm -hmm. and usually although there's you know one or two win conditions per scenario they kind of like add on to each other so you do the first scenario there's a win condition depending on what happens that affects the structure of the second scenario you know so, like, if the first one is I have to beat this monster at uh, Miskatonic University, the second one will be like, oh, I have to go to this jazz club and find this hidden like, artifact or whatever. If I don't beat the monster in the first one, that will affect the way the second scenario plays out or, mm. like, what the win condition for the second scenario is or whatever. So I think it's really fun to be in this milieu in which 
oh, there are all these other ways that yeah. it could have gone, but this is the route that we're doing now. Yeah. So even if that route's kind of like already fixed, I take pleasure in knowing that, oh, I could replay this even and do it differently or whatever. I mean, that's really impressive for a board game, which are often like a yeah. lot more constrained. Having a referee or a dungeon master or a game master really does expand the options available to you because suddenly you don't have to just follow the rules. You can like ask about new things. Speaking as a dun- as a dungeon master, you know, you usually, or at least I don't write this way. I know some DMs do use like flowcharts yep. um, with like critical decision points. Yep. And, but like you don't always think about what are the possible ramif- ramifications of what players far in advance. No. Yeah. Huh? Right. Well, you can't. You can't know what your players are going to do if you actually allow yeah. them a lot of choices. You can't know what will happen. Yeah, exactly. So, like, often I will I will think about, oh, this thing was happening. Or this thing, I'll realize, oh, this thing that I haven't thought about in so long has been happening in the background. I should think about what actually has been happening so so that my players can... So that when my players... I, I'll give an example. So... One of my players is part of this noble house that is wicked and does all these evil things. And so he killed his mom and dad and took over the house. But his brother and uncle were out of town. So we sent a contingent of guards to go and basically, like, prevent his brother and uncle from coming back. And has done nothing since then about these, about these people. So these guards are just there, like, not letting them go home. And they don't know what's going on. But he kind of forgot about this. And I did too. Until the players decided, oh, we're going to go to the town where um, where this is happening. For separate reasons. It has not even occurred to, to the player that, oh, my, my family's here trapped because I trapped them here. Um, so I had to think about, like, oh, well, how has that situation evolved since then? And so I did all this thinking about it. But they didn't end up like they didn't end up coming into contact with their with the brother and dad for all these other reasons and now they're about to leave so all that thinking i did about it doesn't really matter that so you, much you're saying you wasted <laughs> a bunch of time dude i wasted a bunch of time but this is the thing this is the thing if you're a dungeon master like you're you're just wasting your time that's the moral of the story i think that's probably right yeah dungeon masters don't write anything ahead of time don't think about it just let it happen <laughs> you'll have a great session if you well, just let it. them do whatever they want with no plans at all <laughs> it's true you know as much as like because i ran that one shot where everybody was there were like nine people playing and it was a disaster but in some ways it was kind of fun because people just they did whatever they wanted and like nobody engaged with the plot at all nobody knew what was going on nobody like tried to have any kind of relationship to the villains of the of the adventure but that's okay because they had relations with each other and they you mean like sexual relations around well no if they had had sexual relations i think your character would have felt more fully realized yeah this is the one this is the adventure we talked about it on the podcast before where where he was a dominatrix who's looking to for someone to to like whip Yeah, yeah yeah or something that's right and he never found them it's tragic yeah but some stories are tragedies it's true. It's true. Some stories are tragedies. So what's the... It's unfortunate. What's, what do you think the moral of this discussion is for game design, though? 
Ooh, that's a great question. Like, what's um, what's the over under? Like, how important? <laughs> how important on a scale of? Well, let's not give it a scale. How important do you think all of this? Like, we've just, so we just talked a lot about alternate options. They're not. It seems like they aren't necessary for good design experiences, but they're important in some way that transcends that. So, what do you think? How would you like summarize what you think the importance of alternate options is? I would say that your world and the game will seem more realistic and will probably get more engagement if the players perceive themselves as having agency and perceive themselves as having alternate options which have different impacts on the world. Now, there are a bunch of different tricks you can use to try and make the world seem that way and to make it seem like there are more options than there actually are. But I think that a combination of honing your skills at improvising and also some just kind of like preparation ahead of time and musing about it are usually enough to get you through a session. And I think that the best way, the best way, 10 out of 10, best way to make sure that you are not wasting your time preparing all these like myriad uh, is it a myriad of options? I, don't I just know. say, I just say myriad options. <laughs> Many options. Uh, instead of wasting your time preparing <laughs> all these myriad options, yeah. you should ask your players, well, what do you want to do? Yeah. If you've done the groundwork in the previous session of like presenting them with a variety of options, usually they will have, or ideally, they will have engaged with the story and they will have an idea of what they want to do next. And that will help make your game better in the future because if they're engaged in in the session because they have told you what they want to do and they ended up doing it, then for the next session, they will be engaged again of thinking of, oh, well, what is it that I want to do in this world? Because I know that the world matters and the world responds to my choices. Okay, bye. Wait, wait, wait Matt, we need to plug the Patreon. We got to plug the Patreon. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently we have a Patreon. With three listeners, Joey decided it was prudent to make a Patreon. Hold on, hold on a second. Well, but I'm told that our listener in Mexico has big, big pockets. <laughs> Is that one billionaire I, dude in Mexico? I think that uh, oh, there are tons of millionaires in Mexico. Um, oh, there are tons of uh, maybe not tons of billionaires in Mexico. Well, but I guess the peso. I'm thinking is, of one. His name is like Slim or something. All right. Well, that's right, dear listeners. All three of you, <laughs> two of whom are also the hosts of the podcast. We have a Patreon now. So, for the low, low price of one US dollar per month, you can, you can support us and get ad-free content. <laughs> Do we have ads? <laughs> so, Damn, are we, we're getting paid for ads already? So, as Matt has astutely observed, we don't actually run ads yeah. yet. It's coming. Yeah, it's true. It's true. <laughs> um, okay, I'm signing off. I'm leaving. This conversation's gone on long enough. <laughs>